You're listening to Artists and Hackers, the show dedicated to the community building new digital tools of creation. We talk with programmers, artists, poets, musicians, bot makers, and more. We're looking at the current palette of art making tools online and take a critical eye to the history of technology and the internet. We're interested in where we've been and speculative ideas in its future. In this episode, we delve into the community of artists who create their own languages. And I don't mean Klingon, Elvish, or Esperanto. Programming languages are made up of instructions that a programmer uses to produce various kinds of output. These instructions, when put together, implement algorithms. The first programming languages predate the use of a digital computer. In fact, the earliest might have been the automatic flute player of the 9th century, described by the astronomers and brothers Musa from Baghdad during the Islamic Golden Age in their book of ingenious devices. The earliest modern computers, such as code-breaking machines in the Second World War, did not operate based on computer languages. Instead, they were programmed by rewiring the machine. Soon after this era came machines that could be programmed in binary code using punch cards or by flipping switches on and off. In the 1950s, the U.S. Navy's Grace Hopper decided that business data customers were uncomfortable with mathematical notation. Back in 1951, it was becoming increasingly clear 51, 52, 53, 54, that there were a large number of people who loved symbols. They were scientists and engineers. There were also a large number of people that hated symbols, and they worked in words, and they were the data processors. So we proposed that we would permit people to write in English statements, and we would provide a compiler which would translate the machine code. Because I was promptly told that I couldn't do that, because computers couldn't understand English words. She led a team to specify an English programming language that was soon called Flomatic and influenced other early languages like COBOL. In fact, it's influenced all languages since then, and in the past 70 years, there has been the birth of tens of thousands of programming languages. So you might wonder why new ones would still need to be invented. In this episode, we meet artists and hackers that aren't satisfied with the limitations of programming languages. They create their own languages as art forms, or languages that themselves make art. They serve new needs, address current times, or center themselves, instead of the business, corporate, or military needs of computers past. Sarah Groff Hennig Palermo is a digital and video artist with a hybrid arts practice. She makes art, she's a programmer, and she's developed her own language, Le Habre, to create her own visuals and code. We caught up with Sarah from her studio in Berlin to talk about her experience as an artist creating languages and how she explains her own interests and work. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways I've described it in the past that I feel like work for me. Like, what if Roy Lichtenstein and Agnes Martin had a baby who learned how to code? It's like if you had a surfer tee and Ray Gun magazine and smashed them all together and like took them to a Del Taco, like that maybe is like the look I'm aiming for in my art. I think that insisting on the importance of the aesthetics and focusing on transcendence as a goal is my critical work. Doubly so, I would say, because being a woman of color, a lot of times people are 
interested in art if it's about race? Because I think it's a way to make art about white people still, right? Like if you make your art about race, then it has to be about like this relationship that you have with white people. And for me saying like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about other things that are really important to me in this space does feel like a critical stand, even if it's in the absence of over messaging. Sarah's been active in the live coding community for a number of years, particularly in Live Code NYC. And if you're not familiar with live coding, it's a performance medium where visual artists and electronic musicians stand on the stage or beside it, hunched over laptops typing in code. And that code is both projected in front of you so everyone can see it, and you're also hearing the music or seeing the visuals that's made from that code. The focus of live code is really about making computing apprehensible, comprehensible for people to make it something that they can grab onto. So you can hear the music and see the code that makes the music. You can see the visuals and see the code that makes the visuals. I became part of Live Code and part of Cody because Kate Sicchio, who is now a professor at VCU, was a professor at IDM at NYU when I was in the program there. And she had done Live Code in England, in Sheffield. And so she sort of brought Live Code to New York. And once I graduated from school, she and a couple other friends of mine, including Ramsey Nasser, were part of this live code thing. So I first started just going to meetings so that like I could see my friends and also yell about compilers. And Kate talked me into performing with her by basically being like, you'd get to write a whole tool and compiler to like make visuals. So I got sucked into it through the technical question. Um, and I performed once and it blew my mind. I first got into computer languages as an art form and just fell in love with them at SFPC at the School for Poetic Computation. Um, I was in the second full-length class, but when I was at that class, Ramsey Nasser was one of our professors, was one of our teachers there, and he's also a good friend of mine now, and this is how I originally met him. And he did a class about how to make computer languages, and I really feel like that class was a huge turning point in regards to my relationship with computers. Before that, I had learned to write code and I felt like computers were these like capricious gods. Like they were like the Greek gods. Like they might come down and pretend to be a swan and sucker you into like having children with them. And if you typed the right thing into your text editor, maybe it would do what you wanted and maybe it wouldn't. And there was no way to reason about it beyond that. I just had to appease the computer. What I took from that was I was just like, oh, like computers made by idiots, just like me. Like it just made it so understandable all of a sudden, like it demystified it. As Sarah's active as an artist and live coder, she's committed to exploring form, color, and abstraction. But she's also grounded in political principles, and she writes up a manifesto, which she calls computer critical computer art. So one thing that I say in the seven points for a computer critical computer art is that computers like to pretend that they're free from history. Um, they're not. And let's remind them of this fact. Now, one thing to note about Sarah is she's not just thinking through the relatively recent history of modern computing, but she's really contextualizing her work and computers and culture along a much longer historical timeline. A big case in which people talk about sublimity is the 18th century, looking at nature, you know, wrapped up, of course, in colonization that people want to talk about, like the sublime of the great forests or like in the 19th century going to the Western U.S. And that kind of sublimity is really only is also very much about colonialism and people getting to encounter those spaces. 
When I take the work I make and it works and I put it up big on a wall and I stare at it, I feel that same sense of losing myself that I do if I look at a Bill Viola piece or an Agnes Martin piece or a Barnett Newman piece. And this is how I figured out how to make that feeling happen. So like, I have all these critical ideas about it and all of those things are true, but fundamentally at its heart, it's like about being able to find that feeling. Sarah met Ramsey Nasser at the School for Poetic Computation, also known as SFPC. It's a sort of hybrid school, residency, and research group that was founded in 2013 in New York. My name is Ramsey Nasser. I'm a computer scientist, an educator, and a game designer. And I'm passionate about making uh, fun and useful things. Like Sarah, Ramsey is also an artist and a programmer. And he's always found himself probing the boundaries between these media. Uh, I work on games, and I work on interactive experiences, uh, and I work on programming languages. And in some sense, those are very different artifacts. Uh, their goals are very different. Um, but to my mind, they come from the same place. And the similarities there are that you're designing experiences for people. You're thinking, whether you're making a game or an installation or a programming language, you're thinking very hard about a human being who's going to touch the thing that you made with their hands and with their mind. You're thinking about how you're constraining their actions, what actions you're uh, enabling, what actions you're disallowing, what actions you're encouraging or discouraging. Um, you're inviting people to think in, in particular ways and, and, and to act in particular ways. So, no, they're very similar to me, uh, a game and a programming language. And it's a lot of the same uh, uh, skills that I, that I feel that I deploy. Uh, or a programming language that you want people to use and share is not something that you just dream up in your head and bang out on a laptop. It's something you share with people and get feedback from people and you, you, know, you integrate that feedback back into the, into the thing. Um, so they're very similar in that regard. Programmers are like anyone else. They bring all sorts of interests and goals when they're approaching their craft. For Ramsey, he comes from a place where he's questioning the defaults of the field. I think a lot of people who write software and use programming languages on a daily basis feel this itch that the tool that they're using is not great or is full of quirks or, and limitations. That's not, a, that's not a novel thought to have. I think most programmers have that thought. Uh, and I think a lot of my instincts to get into language design sort of come from that. In 2012, Ramsey created the programming language Kalb while in residency at iBeam Art and Technology Center. He describes the language as both an artistic endeavor and a response to Anglophone bias in programming languages. So Alb is a response to um, what I describe on the website as Anglophone bias. And what I mean by that is um, every programming language in use on the planet, uh, it, every programming language in serious use on the planet is based on American English. Uh, this is true without exception. Um, and people ask me about, like, you know, what about China? What about India? It's all Java and C++. And they're all people whose native language is not English, whose native script is not even Latin, in fact, are required to gain some familiarity with these, with these language systems in order to become proficient programmers. So the uh, jumping off point for Elb is that sort of political observation. It's an artistic response because it does not really set out to solve the problem on its own. So it's not a, uh, it doesn't set out to like offer a solution, but it's, it sets out to, uh, to be a provocation and to direct attention towards something that is like largely ignored, I think, by most programmers. 
Ramsey's a true polyglot. He can speak Arabic, English, and some Turkish, and he can program in dozens of languages and has written many of his own. There's something I find quite joyful about just watching code in one language turn into code in another language. I love going on Google Translate and seeing what it thinks English words would be in Arabic or what it thinks Arabic words would be in English. And partially that's funny to me because sometimes it completely fails and you get like these really hilarious edge cases. But it's also just what I have been doing in my head for a lo as long as I've had access to language as a human being. But I've always had multiple languages just kind of bouncing around in my head. So yeah, translation, uh, uh, just a sort of active, constant process of, of translating back and forth between things. I think it's just a fundamental part of who I am. And that just comes from being, uh, you know, born between two cultures and, and being bilingual. As Ramsey creates languages as provocation and projects of conceptual art, New York-based artist Daniel Temkin creates languages that cut to the core of whether humans and computers can really ever speak the same language. I'm an artist who works in, uh, I guess, a few different media. Um, I'm very interested in the clash between human irrationality and logic, often in the form of, of computers and our interaction with computers, but, but not always. And that's something I explore in uh, net art pieces, designing programming languages, and sometimes in other media, especially photography, which is actually the thing that I studied in my MFA. Like Sarah and Ramsey, Daniel has a background that starts really beyond programming. I graduated with, with a BA in philosophy and communication arts, and I had to get a job. So I very quickly taught myself very sort of basic web programming, which was really what you needed in 1997 in order to get a job. And so I've been working as a programmer since then. That's my day job. And my conclusion after years and years of programming is that, in general, code doesn't work. Daniel's art practice revolves around creating esolangs. So basically, an esolang is uh, it's short for esoteric programming language. And it's the class of that are not designed for practical programming. Experiments in code um, kind of pushing at the limits of what's possible to do in a programming language. Um, challenges to conventional ideas of computation. It's something that, that really began in the, the 90s. The first language that's generally accepted as an SLang is Intercal, which is from 1972. But the languages that, that really sort of began the movement of SLangs both appeared in, in 1993, um, uh, BrainFuck and BeFunge. BrainFuck and BeFunge are some of the earliest esoteric programming languages. At first, a practice mostly practiced by programmers, but over time, artists started to approach and think about these works, including in the late 90s and then into the 2000s and early 2010s as a larger community started to work in this field. I started designing programming languages for fun well before then, but it wasn't until I was in art school that I started to recognize that that work was also art. Because before then, I thought of it as there's a stuff that I do that artists understand, which is photographic. And there's a stuff that other programmers understand, which are these SLANGs. And I, I didn't really, um, I, I didn't think of them as art because uh, other artists were just confused by the, the work. It, it, it seemed like it was too difficult to make that jump into um, a medium that you can, you primarily experience by writing code in it. There's this, there's this great essay by uh, Joseph Weizenbaum, who's, who's best known for creating um, the Eliza chatbot. 
Eliza is an early natural language computer program, and it was created uh, from 1964 to 1966 at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab that was run by Joseph Weizenbaum. And it's really a chatbot. It's, it's an early program that simulates the experience of speaking with a psychotherapist. And he, he wrote this paper called Science and the Compulsive Programmer um, about the kind of uh, cycle of compulsion that happens w w when you're writing code. So it's like you, you write something and it has bugs and you fix those bugs, but you've introduced new bugs. And then you fix those things and you get something that's, that's basically working the way that you want. But there's always something more you can add to it. And it becomes this, this kind of um, cycle where you're, you're adding more and more stuff, whether it makes any sense or not. The reason why it's, it's so frustrating to, to write code, especially when you're in that cycle, is that um, there's the sense that you have total control over the computer. It's going to do anything you tell it to. So when you run into problems, it's because you've told it to do the wrong thing. It's like you've set yourself up as your own obstacle. So there can be a distinction in languages between those that are structural and playing with form versus those that might have a conceptual, political, social, or cultural conceit to their work. There's a book that came out uh, last year by Mark Marino called Critical Code Studies, and it has a chapter on indigenous programming, which has become an area of exploration more widely recently. And there's, there's work like Cree Sharp by uh, John Corbett, where it's not just that you're writing code in, in Cree instead of in English, but also that it, it brings in the Cree notions of storytelling into the way that you write the programs so that you're no longer thinking within the metaphors that English provides for, for programming. Your Lang is a programming language by Anuluapo Karoi. He's a programmer based in Nigeria. My name is um, Anuluapo Karoi. I'm a software developer. I've been writing code for about um, eight years now. Uh, and I'm the creator of um, Yolang, a programming language that allows you to write code in Yoruba. So um, making Yolang was really not something I thought I was going to do initially. It was an idea that came from a friend. So he was like, oh, it would be cool if we could uh, write some keywords in Yoruba, like um, print L word, for example. The print statement equivalent to Yoruba is like um, sokwe. So I was like, hmm, that's, that's not a bad idea. Like, let me give this a go. So I set out to, to write um, print L word in Yoruba. So that's, that's pretty much it, really. It was something that came from uh, an idea from a friend, jokingly, really, and then it, it became something that when shared to the public, they wanted to contribute to and to play around with. So as I'm listening to Ana Luapo and Daniel and Ramsey and Sarah talk about their practice of building languages, I'm really considering them within a lineage of designing tools, new tools. So I, I do think of programming languages as tools, and, and programming languages are tools that come with, with a point of view. They're, they're designed in such a way that they're set up for you to, to think in terms of that language in order to achieve your goals. And so it's interesting as art projects, as SLNs, because you're, you're basically designing the, the point of view that you want people to think through in order to do whatever practical thing they're trying to do with your language. Um, and and that's, that's really where the, the, the drama happens, is, is when people are, are trying to think through your language in order to achieve some, some sort of goal with it. In a sense, these are set up as, as challenges, and I think that, that that's really what makes them interesting. 
Programming languages are a fundamental aspect of computing, and they've expanded far beyond simply acting as tools of mathematics and computation. They have embedded values, and artists and programmers are actively shaping them. Today, they're a genuine medium of creative expression. And as artists and hackers bring new esoteric languages into being, they're creating languages more reflective of the world that we live in today, as well as works that are playful, expand our understanding, challenge our biases, and create new mediums and forms of art and expression. I think it's a real shame and to underestimate what's interesting about computing to just turn them into machines for business and oppression. Like, that's crap. That's our show this week. You've been listening to Artists and Hackers. I'm your host, Lee Tussman. The show was produced by Mimi Charles, design and coordination by Caleb Stone. Thanks to everyone we spoke to, including Sarah Groff Hennig Palermo, Ramsey Nasser, Daniel Temkin, and Analuapo Kuroi. Our music today is Trip to Ganymede by Kilo Kaus and the song Serrated and Pixel Pool by Cody. Sound design by Mimi Charles. Support for Artists and Hackers comes from Purchase College, our website where you can find more episodes, our show notes, and additional info at artisanhackers.org. We're on Instagram as artisanhackers and Twitter at artisthacking. If you liked our show, please let a friend know. Thanks for listening.